This is The New Criterion. I'm James Pinero, Executive Editor. Readers of the January 2019 issue of The New Criterion will note a special section called Permanent Things, Russell Kirk's Centenary. The symposium came out of a conversation that we at The New Criterion had with my guest today, Dan McCarthy, who joins us. Welcome. Thank you, James. Daniel McCarthy is the director of the Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship Program at the Fund for American Studies. And since 2017, he's also the editor of Modern Age, a conservative review published quarterly since 1957 and now a part of ISI. Is that right? That's correct. In our January issue, Dan has an essay, Russell Kirk, Worldly Conservative, and we have both that essay and the audio of your talk available already online, so we're not going to go over that again. But I do want to ask, Russell Kirk, why now? Last year was the centenary of uh, Russell Kirk's birth. And right now, of course, conservatism is in a kind of philosophical flux. There are uh, a great many arguments in all of the conservative publications about exactly what it means uh, in the era of Donald Trump to be a conservative. And at first, there would seem to be absolutely nothing in common between the conservatism of Russell Kirk, which was very literary and philosophical, and the political controversies of conservatism today. But I thought it'd be very interesting to have an essay that kind of put these two uh, phenomena in light of one another, uh, both the debates among conservatives today and uh, Russell Kirk's own involvement, not only in literary politics uh, in his own time, but also in the more worldly side of things. And of course, Kirk's book, The Conservative Mind, published in 1953, is a kind of Bible for many of us. We read it at some point. Is that the book, if you're new to Kirk, that you should pick up? You know, I've been struggling with that question. Uh, it seems to me that several of Kirk's uh, essay collections, such as Redeeming the Time or The Politics of Prudence, may be the most uh, easy way for a reader who's new to Kirk uh, to um, become acquainted with him. Why do you think Kirk fell out of fashion if he in fact did fall out of fashion with the conservatives? That's a good question. I don't know that he necessarily fell out of fashion. I think he's always had a certain uh, cult following of sorts. But conservatism in general for a time became very closely annexed to the sort of Republican Party mainstream. And it became, I think, extremely politicized to a point where it tended to neglect the philosophical and literary uh, roots of conservatism uh, in uh, post-war America. And so right now, when conservatism is much more uh, open to question, uh, those roots, those philosophical dimensions have once again been rediscovered and are compelling and urgent once more. Well, and as Republican politics became quite associated with neoconservatism, um, it seems that Kirk's more isolationist point of view was out of step at the time, but perhaps not so much anymore. Russell Kirk did in the late 1980s. In fact, I'm always surprised when I remember that this took place before the first Persian Gulf War. Uh, Kirk gave a talk at the Heritage Foundation where he was quite critical of uh, the neoconservatives. In fact, he referred to them as an endangered species. Um, so there was this polemical aspect to some of Kirk's thought, which probably was uh, awkward, uh, you know, a decade ago or so when it seemed as if neoconservatism was perhaps regnant and triumphant on the right. 
Um, but I don't know if that's really the primary reason for the neglect of Kirk over the last uh, 20 years or so. I think there's just a uh, perhaps a natural tendency when you have someone who had a career as long as Kirk's was. As you may have mentioned, uh, The Conservative Mind was first published in 1953. Kirk dies in 1994. And there's this tendency, I think, for people to kind of neglect uh, a Kirk or, for that matter, a Buckley towards the end of their lives when you think, well, they've said all that they're going to say and therefore um, – kind of take them for granted. And it's only about a decade or perhaps more after the, their death uh, that suddenly their works uh, take on uh, a strength of their own separate from their personalities and separate from their place in the movement. Well, I think what's also interesting is that uh, Kirk was not working out of New York or Washington, D.C., but a town called Macosta uh, in Michigan, near where he was born and, and certainly where he raised his family. Do you think that there's a, a new interest in heartland politics that has played in here? There is. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things about Kirk is he not only lived in his hometown of Macosta, Michigan, but he was quite involved in uh, sort of local uh, Michigan politics and uh, Macosta politics as well. He served as a justice peace, for example. And um, he was uh, his good friend, uh, Peter Stanless, uh, actually had a hand in writing, I think, the most recent version of the state of Michigan's constitution. So you have these intellectual conservatives who are sometimes seen as being uh, ivory tower intellectuals. But in fact, within their own local communities, they are quite active, uh, even on the political scene. Well, and he seemed like a real gentleman in that town, and, and his home became a, a center for political refugees. And it's still a center. The Kirk Center operates today out of Acosta, Michigan. Isn't that right? Have you been there? You know, I have never been to the Kirk Center myself. Uh, a very funny thing happened uh, last spring, which was that I was set to go to Acosta, um, Michigan and see the Kirk Center after an event in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And this was in April, I believe. And the Great Lakes being what they are, they uh, turned up a snowstorm uh, there in April, which was quite unexpected. Uh, the last time I'd been in Grand Rapids at that time, it was actually a beautiful, uh, sunny, almost, um, you know, sort of uh, early summer season in some ways. But uh, the environment of Michigan can be quite uh, surprising. And so uh, we had a snowstorm that prevented us from getting to uh, Macosta uh, last year. I'm hoping to see it uh, soon, though. Well, it's, that only adds to the charm of it, doesn't it? Well, it does, except the charm of being stranded in Grand Rapids for you know a bit longer than you expected can be uh, unfortunate. So I, I had checked out of the very nice hotel I had been staying in as part of the conference. The conference was put together by uh, Gleaves Whitney, who's uh, uh, an intellectual we have uh, in our uh, forthcoming issue of Modern Age, in fact. He's written a, uh, a very brilliant essay about uh, his mentor and uh, sort of um, inspiration, uh, Stephen Tonsor. Uh, but anyway, Gleaves Whitney uh, is now at uh, Grand Valley State University, and he put together a, uh, a conference each year that brings together uh, intellectuals from the left and the right to have a discussion. I had gone to uh, Grand Rapids for that, and uh, unfortunately, I checked out at the very nice hotel that Gleaves had us staying in. Uh, when the, uh, the blizzard hit, my flight was canceled, and then the, the replacement flight was also canceled, so I wound up staying for three or four days in a Best Western. Uh. <laughs> now, Russell Kirk connects... To your current job at Modern Age, he was also an editor. What was Russell Kirk's role in Modern Age? He was actually the founder back in 1957. Um, this was a point where there was no authoritative conservative publication. National Review gets started in 1955, and it very quickly becomes the authoritative conservative magazine. But a little earlier in the 1950s, Russell Kirk and Henry Regnery had been looking to start a conservative publication, 
And that's what eventually becomes uh, Modern Age when it uh, launches in 1957. And they had had some hopes at first of starting something more like National Review, something that would be published perhaps monthly or, or even more frequently. Um, but it turned out to be a quarterly was what was feasible, and that's what they pursued. And I think that balanced out quite well with Modern Age um, providing a, a quarterly intellectual side of conservatism, while National Review, while also having pretty strong intellectual bona fides, uh, was providing a biweekly dose of you know politics and the current scene. And which... Russell Kirk had a hand in as well. That's right. Uh, Russell Kirk, uh, for decades, in fact, wrote a column for National Review, I believe called From the Academy, which was ironic because Russell Kirk was not in the Academy at that point. (laughs) Kirk had briefly um, taught at, uh, uh, I think, what is now Michigan State University. He found the uh, experience unpleasant. He considered it uh, behemoth university, he called it. And so he uh, got out of the Academy as quickly as he could. Have you studied the history of the conservative movement? You know so much about it. For the most part, my knowledge of uh, conservative intellectual history is uh, a form of autodidacticism. However, I did, in fact, uh, sit in when I was a junior in college at uh, Washington University in St. Louis. I sat in on a a freshman class, sorry, a sophomore class uh, that was taught by a fellow named Paul Murphy. And ironically enough, Murphy is now at Grand Valley State University. Uh, And Murphy was at the time working on a book on the Southern agrarians and their legacy among conservatives like Richard Weaver and uh, various other agrarian-minded or, you know, Southern uh, conservatives. And so uh, Murphy gave a class uh, one semester at Washington University, an honors class, on the conservative movement. He put together a very nice reader on that. And so even though I was already something of a um, self-taught shouldn't say expert, but certainly someone knowledgeable about uh, the conservative movement, uh, that class was nonetheless quite valuable, uh, you know, sort of for seeing how academics uh, discuss conservatism as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how you took on Modern Age and um, what you're looking to do with the publication? Well, you know, I took control of Modern Age under uh, rather tragic circumstances. Uh, Peter Augustin Lawler, who had been the editor before me, uh, died very suddenly. And uh, he had only just begun uh, his role as editor of Modern Age. He'd produced, I think, uh, two issues uh, at the time that he died. So it was quite shocking to everyone. And um, we had to spend, you know, a, a little bit of time not only going over the material that we that Peter had already collected, but also a number of assignments that had been made that, uh, in some cases, other uh, staff at the uh, publication were not even aware had been made. So we had a, a few things pop out of the woodwork. Uh, which was all to the good. Uh, Peter was an absolutely brilliant commissioning editor, and the material he commissioned I was very happy to publish over the next year or so. Uh, But it was a bit of a scramble at first just to make sure that we knew of everything that was out there and got it into print in a timely fashion. And what are you looking for now? Well, what I'm looking for now is to bring back a little bit of the sense that modern age has had uh, going back really to the 1950s uh, of being a place where the finest conservative minds can meet and debate and have some civil differences in their points of view. So we want to have, for example, representatives of traditionalism and libertarianism, uh, for that matter, neoconservatism, you know, uh, various kinds of sort of quasi-populist or nationalist conservatives. Frank Buckley, for example, was in uh, one of the first issues I put together. We want to bring together these uh, different uh, threads of conservatism and these different thinkers and uh, really uh, sort of force them all to kind of uh, think through their assumptions and uh, develop their minds further, as opposed to simply having publications of their own where they stay within their sort of sequestered um, uh, cloisters and uh, simply talk to themselves as opposed to having to compare uh, their ideas to one another. 
And so I see you'll often have themes and multiple writers writing on that theme. Is that how you, you commission that? Uh, you look for different perspectives on these themes? Yes. And in fact, Peter Augustine Lawler and I have slightly different approaches to this. Peter, I think, had uh, a very clear idea of what theme he wanted each issue and would commission essays specifically for that. Whereas I like to see the material uh, as it comes in, as I commission things piecemeal, and then organically look for connections between different essays and see what kind of uh, pattern kind of spontaneously emerges uh, as a sort of interplay of both what I'm commissioning and also uh, the pieces that are being pitched to me or being sent to me over the transom uh, by our regular writers and by uh, you know other people who are interested in appearing in our pages. It's such a fractious time on the right. It's interesting to have an ecumenical approach. Um, has it worked out for you so far? It's worked out very well. And... Um, you know, it's a balance to strike, but it seems to me that uh, there are so many publications that are dedicated to one particular point of view uh, that it's worth having uh, this kind of venue and this discussion. Now, you know, myself, uh, you know, having been the editor of the American Conservative before coming to Modern Age, uh, and the fact that Modern Age has this background uh, going back to Russell Kirk uh, with the traditionalist side of things, uh, I think Kirk and I would both perhaps object to the label isolationist, but certainly we have uh, a view that is less perhaps hawkish or um, sort of globally interventionist than uh, certain other strains of conservatism. So there is a center of gravity to modern age, which I think would be on the traditionalist side of things. But we want it, again, to be um, sort of a, a kind of challenge and response uh, approach to conservative thought. We don't want it simply to be um, articulating the things we already believe. We want it to be really testing and expanding our horizons. And as I understand, your winter 2019 issue is at press... And do you want to tell us a little bit what we can expect from it? Oh, we have some marvelous stuff uh, coming up in the winter 2019 issue. Uh, we have two major themes to the issue. One of these is what we're calling America's Country Party. And this uh, takes a look at a number of, well, you might say in some ways deplorable uh, thinkers or deplorable aspects of uh, American political thought, as uh, Hillary Clinton might put it. Um, so we have, for example, an essay on uh, uh, Andrew Jackson by Bill Kaufman. We have a wonderful essay by a young academic named Mary Cuff uh, called The Robert Penn Warren Option, looking at Robert Penn Warren's uh, agrarianism as a literary and uh, almost a spiritual counterpoint to modern industrialism and capitalism, but not saying that we should have, you know, an attempt to create a political or economic program of agrarianism, but rather that agrarianism is an ideal against which we can compare uh, the rather, uh, you know, sort of uh, daunting and dark world in which we live today. So we have a number of pieces like that. And then we also have a symposium uh, featuring a number of book reviews looking at uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union and also the creation of the Soviet Union in the first place with the um, uh, perhaps not Lenin, but with Stalin. And then we also have uh, an essay by Paul Hollander looking at uh, uh, post-Soviet uh, uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, so all these elements fit together, I think, in a way that kind of raises some questions about civilization, what it looks like to have a civilization that is kind of stolen from you, as was the case in Russia, or what it means to have a civilization such as our own, which is rather jeopardized and in need of finding uh, ways to renew its roots. We often hear the complaint now that no one knows their history. And I think conservatives, you could say, often don't know conservative history. So I think that's one thing that's so great about what you're doing at Modern Age is writing these essays. And it's what Russell Kirk was doing in the conservative mind, right? He was writing the conservative history, one that he saw, but no one had quite identified the way he did. 
It's remarkable. We now take it for granted what we find in uh, the conservative mind, where uh, Kirk traces this intellectual legacy of Edmund Burke uh, through both British and American sources. But at the time Russell Kirk wrote The Conservative Mind, uh, this tradition had been uh, completely neglected. And in fact, uh, as I recall, there were certain encyclopedias, perhaps not the Encyclopedia Britannica, but some of the lesser ones, which in fact omitted conservatism as a topic uh, within their pages. Um, conservatism had fallen onto you know, such hard times that uh, there's this famous, of course, uh, quote from Lionel Trilling, in which he says that nowadays, you know, uh, conservatism has been reduced to a series of irritable mental gestures. And uh, Trilling was not trying to attack conservatives. He was actually saying that uh, liberals needed to have conservatives, uh, people like um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, for example, uh, as a counterpoint to their own views and as a challenge to their own views. And, well, and this is an approach that you've taken since the time you were working at the American Conservative as editor. I think that's how I got to know you. You commissioned me to write an essay on Thomas Hart Benton. That's right. And we had also been on a panel at CPAC about a decade ago. Uh, it was, in fact, uh, the very month that Bill Buckley died, if I'm not mistaken, in 2008, wow. February. Uh, you and I and uh, Matthew Continetti right. were on a panel to discuss various aspects of his life. That's right. And as I mentioned before, you also wear the hat uh, of director of the Robert Novak Fellowship, a division of the Fund for American Studies. Can you tell us what that is? Well, the Novak uh, Fellowships have been around for about 25 years now. Uh, they had started out as the Phillips Fellowships. And what they do is they provide uh, financial support and some editorial supervision and guidance to about a half a dozen journalists each year who apply to us, uh, pitch their projects to us uh, with a, you know, we have a fairly uh, heavy duty application process. Uh, but it's because we want to give these um, young journalists uh, between thirty-five dollars and uh, $70,000 in order to pursue basically a project that could become a book or become a series of essays, uh, but that really gives a young journalist a chance to uh, get ahead in a way that would otherwise be very difficult. And uh, Robert Novak was one of the early uh, judges of this program. It was something he deeply believed in uh, because Novak himself had started out as a young journalist in Illinois. And it was only a lucky break that uh, sort of made him a national figure. And he had the idea that there were other people out there in the 1990s when the program began who needed the kind of uh, lucky break that he had received uh, himself uh, some decades before. And as I understand, another fellowship you now manage is the Joseph Rago Fellowship at the Wall Street Journal. That's correct. So Joseph Rago was a brilliant uh, and, in fact, Pulitzer-winning young editorial writer at the Wall Street Journal. And uh, he died uh, tragically young. And as a result, uh, his family wanted to memorialize him and the work that he had done uh, in a way that would uh, inspire and sort of uh, help to develop uh, future generations of journalistic talent. So they had the idea to create the um, Joseph Rago Memorial Fellowship for Excellence in Journalism. Uh, we at the Fund for American Studies offered to host this program. And the program provides uh, basically a nine-month, uh, right now, eventually it will be a year-long uh, fellowship uh, with the editorial division of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and our first um, Rego fellow, Elliot Kaufman, is doing absolutely splendid work. Uh, he's a recent graduate of Stanford. He's really a very brilliant young individual. He's had cover stories and commentary. He's written a number of pieces for the journal himself. And uh, we really have high hopes not only for him, but also for the example he's going to set for the program. And we think that um, you know each of the Rego fellows in the future is someone who is going to, in their own way, sort of add to uh, Joseph Rego's own uh, reputation as one of the just outstanding young uh, journalists and writers of his generation. Uh, he's irreplaceable. 
Like almost all of the writers I know and admire these days, it seems, uh, you were writing for Spectator USA. Can you tell me what you're doing there? That's right. I write uh, pretty regularly as a columnist of sorts for Spectator.us. Um, and uh, it's really a great honor and a great joy. Uh, I've been an admirer of The Spectator uh, as long as I've been interested in journalism. And uh, I had the good fortune to work with uh, Freddie Gray, who's now a deputy editor at The Spectator in London. Uh, I had the chance to work with him uh, about a decade ago when he was literary editor for The American Conservative. And so I've kept in touch, and uh, I've continued to publish him. He had continued to publish me in The Spectator. And so as uh, The Spectator USA launched, uh, I was one of the people um, tapped to be a regular contributor, uh, alongside, of course, uh, Roger Kimball, who's been doing phenomenal work, uh, not only for the new Criterion, but also in his capacity as a uh, regular uh, fixture of Spectator USA. You've been listening to The New Criterion, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and NewCriterion.com. I'm James Panero, Executive Editor. My guest today has been Daniel McCarthy. Daniel is a contributor to Permanent Things, Russell Kirk's centenary, our symposium that appears in the January issue. He's also the editor of Modern Age, a conservative review. Its next issue will be in print and online at ModernAgeJournal.com. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thank you, James.